Okay, I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, the last couple podcasts, I've been talking about the design of Theros. So today, I'm going to start talking about some of the individual cards and some stories about the cards. But, before I can do that, I realize I never introduced my design team. Bad morrow, bad morrow! Um, one of the things I always like to do um, is talk about the design team. Uh, part of the point of my podcast is a little historical context. And hey, who are the people that made this set? Uh, I do want to talk about that a little bit. So, first up, uh, Ethan Fleischer. Um, so, Ethan was the, the winner of The Great Designer 2 um, uh, search. And uh, at the time this started, he was an intern. He, he hadn't yet been hired full-time. Um, but I wanted him on the set, and I, in fact, I had given him an assignment, as I talked about previously, um, to do research, because research was something he, he was very good at, and I said, okay, let's do some research on Wigan Roman mythology. I wanted some experts. Um, I had one other expert I'll get to in a second. Um, and Ethan, obviously, the way it works at Wizards is, um, we don't tend to hire people right away, we tend to give them an internship, and then we use that internship to sort of give us six months to, to gauge, you know, how, how we feel they're doing. Uh, and this allows us to sort of, it gives us time to pick the right people, you know, that we don't have to, uh, you know, we're not sort of just guessing without knowing that we have someone who we can actually spend some time with. So Ethan, during the six-month period, was trying very, very hard. He wanted to stay at Wizards, and, and uh, um, I wanted him to stay at Wizards. I, he, I thought he was very good. Um, I had seen a lot of his potential during the Great Designer Search, but I wanted to make sure that the potential I saw became realized so that other people could see it as well. Um, and so I thought this would be a very good project for him. Um, he was very passionate about Greek and Roman mythology. He was very excited. Like, what happens is, when you come to Wizards, we fill you in. You learn all the stuff, all the sets in between, you know, that we've done, that are done, that you, but you don't know yet. And then you learn stuff that's upcoming that we're going to work on. And when Ethan found out we were doing uh, Greek and Roman mythology, he was very excited. And I, so I said, okay, I'm going to tap into this. Um, Ethan, so one of the things that I do in my designs is I have what I call a strong second, which is um, I have somebody take care of the file. Um, now, I, I do this for two reasons. One is I'm very busy, and sort of inputting the file is a lot of work. Um, it's something that for many, many, many sets I did. Uh, normally, the, the lead designer does it. Um, and it's a very valuable tool for a lead designer because just being able to constantly put things in, looking at the file, helps you sort of figure out where you want things to be. But I've done a lot of sets, and what I learned is that having somebody else uh, be in charge of inputting everything um, gives them a much better chance to see this. The same reason the head designer, the lead designer, wants to see a set, uh, it allowed my strong second to do that. And so, A, it freed me up a little bit because I'm busy, and B, uh, it was a good teaching tool. And so the reason I, I have a strong second on all my sets is it's a very, very valuable way to teach because the person's there, they see all the changes, they walk through the things they want to do, and they're the ones constantly monitoring the set of, of watching what's going on. Um, and uh, I'm the only person that does, that does that because most lead designers still want to sort of control their file or monitor their file. I guess I control my file, but want to monitor their file. And I've done it long enough that, you know, I... I don't need to be so close to it to sort of get, get a sense of where, it, where it's at. Um, anyway, Ethan was my strong second. He did a very good job. Uh, another reason Ethan was on the team was we were planning to have Ethan uh, do his, lead his very first set, which was going to be Journey into Next, which was the third set in the block. 
And so I wanted Ethan on the first and second set. So by the time he got there, he was well-versed on every set in the block. Okay, next, Ken Nagel. Um, so Ken Nagel uh, is the... He was the runner-up for the first great designer search. Um, both Alexis Jansen won. Both Alexis and Ken uh, got internships. And then Ken ended up turning his internship into a full-time job. Alexis also turned into a full-time job, but not in R&D. Uh, she's very, very involved in in the digital side of things, in Magic Online. Um, so Ken um, was in charge of Born of the Gods, which was the next set. Um, and so uh, usually on the large team, we always have the person leading the next set on the team so they can observe what's going on. We don't always have the third person on the first team. Sometimes they're on the second team. I just need them to be familiar before they get there. Um, but since uh, Ethan was new and it was his first set, I wanted him to be involved for the whole block. Um, also, I double things up in that I, I, get a, I get a second that I'm teaching with. So Ethan kind of doubled up both in the strong second role and the fact that he could watch the upcoming sets because he was working on the third set. Uh, Ken Nagel is interesting. Ken is my most experienced designer now. Uh, I mean, I said myself, obviously. Um, and it's funny because I remember when Ken was, Ken had his internship, and, you know, uh, but five years have gone by and Ken has made a lot of sets and Ken has become a very, very good designer. So it is, uh, it's fun watching your little ones grow up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, Ken has really come to shine, and we know he was born in the gods. He did an excellent job. Um, but anyway, Ken was here to sort of, uh, I mean, Ken's just a good designer. I mean, one of the things you want to make sure on every design team is just have enough good designers that you know you'll get a lot of cards. And Ken is a card machine. So having Ken around is always useful. And, um, like I said, he gives good insight, makes great cards. Um, and Ken has been, you know, really, uh, coming along as an excellent designer. So it is fun to watch uh, Ken's growth over the last five years. Next, we have Zach Hill. Okay, so I, I talked about how we always have a developer on the team, what we call the development representative or the dev rep. Um, Zach has been on a number of different design teams. I, I really enjoyed having Zach on my team. Um, he was a developer that actually did a decent amount of design. Uh, the dev rep can vary. Some developers do a little bit of design. Some do a lot of design. Um, most developers can do some design. Uh, they understand the basics. Um, some of which, and there's a variance of sort of how much design I did. Zach was in the middle. Um, he was a developer that could do design. Um, he wasn't quite a designer in, in a traditional sense, but he was a developer that contributed very, very much to the design process. And I loved working with, with um, Zach. I, I say past tense because Zach has since moved on to other things. Um, he's no longer at Wizards. But uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, having Zach. And another thing Zach did on this set is we have a design team and then we have a development team and we always have a person that's on both, uh, the crossover. Somebody who on the development team can speak the vision and the ideas the design team had. Um, and so uh, it's not always the dev rep. Sometimes it's somebody else. But in this particular set, uh, it was Zach. So Zach was very, very involved in this set because he was bo- on both the design team and the development team. Next, we have Jenna Helen. So Jenna... Um, is from the creative team. So one of the things that I, I like to do is uh, there's something called card concepting. What card concepting is, is for a set, somebody has to sit down and look at what the cards mechanically do and figure out what, what is the art going to be about. What, what's the concept of the art? And the idea of card concepting is saying, well, I need to get an image that I think will both portray what this card is doing and capture the flavor of, of the the world we're doing. I have a few examples later on of some interesting places how they concepted. Um, 
Anyway, I like having, we always have a creative team member on the large set. Um, we try to have creative team members on all sets if we can, but for sure, for sure, on the large set. Um, I like having the person in charge of concepting be my creative person, and Jenna was, because it allows the person who's doing the concepting to really understand what matters. Um, and so Jenna, by the way, was the other expert on Greek and Roman mythology. She also did a lot of research, um, and they needed to do a lot of research to be able to do the background. Um, because the trick about creative was we're doing a world inspired by Greek and Roman mythology, which means it has a lot of elements of Greek mythology. And once again, we, we didn't do Roman mythology. We did Greek mythology. Um, it had a lot of elements of, of Greece, ancient Greece and Greek um, mythology, but it was very important to them that they, we make our own world. Like one of the things is um, early magic, you know, take us out like Arabian Nights, where it was just really trying to copy Arabian Nights. It was trying to like, how, what would Arabian Nights look like? Um, nowadays, we more want to carve our own world, you know. And so, Theros has its own cosmology and its own, you know, there's cities and people and monsters, and but it has a, its own history to it. And now, it's very much borrowed from Greek mythology in the sense that that is the source of inspiration, but it's its own thing. Um, like, one of the things that came up from time to time is we'll add a few things that are our own tweaks on things. I know the lean in are the ones that got the most attention. And the idea was, look, mostly we are doing... Um, we're doing Greek mythology, but we're trying to have a little bit be a magic's version of it. And so we add a few things that are our own. We take a lot of things that were in Greek mythology. Like, but we also, for example, a very, very common thing is in Greek mythology, most monsters there was one of. You know, there was one Minotaur. There was one Pegasus. I think there were three Gorgons. You know, there was not a lot of certain monsters. But for us, we're like, no, we need a whole bunch of monsters. So in our world, they're races. They're not, you know, individual singular things. Um, Jenna, by the way... Uh, the creative team, like the dev team, is there's a mix of how much design they can do. Jenna always surprises me with her design. Um, she is, she always is, it's very funny. Jenna is very, the person who goes, oh, well, I don't know, I'm not sure if I can do this, and then, like, turns stuff in, and it's good, you know, and um, I, I've had Jenna on a bunch of teams. She also was on Innistrad, so I've had Jenna on both my top-down designs, and she's been very, very helpful. Um, one of the things we used to do is Jenna would make a list of names and bring them in. And we did a lot of top-downs from a name. We'll get to some of those. Um, where she would just come up with a cool name and then we would design to it. And there's some very, very cool um, stuff we made that was based just on names that we had. Uh, finally, this last person, Billy Moreno, wasn't actually on um, the Theros design team. He, in fact, was on the advanced planning team, but he was the guy who made Bestow. And so... I, one of my big beliefs in design is I, I'm a big believer in design credit. Um, I want to make sure that if whoever designed things um, gets credit for what they do. Um, and so I gave him credit uh, as, as being on the design team, although technically he was on the design team. But he did contribute Bestow, which is a huge part of the design. So he gets credit for the design. Um, Billy, like, uh, like Zach, is no longer with us. Um, we've had a little bit of churn uh, in our development. Um, uh, interesting, by the way, both Zach and Billy left of their own accord. Both of them had th- reasons they needed to leave. Uh, both loved Wizards, but both had other opportunities. Um, we, we enjoyed having both of them there, and bo- both of them will be missed. Um, Billy, Billy, by the way, is uh, more of a... I mean, he's a little more developer than a designer, but he definitely is a developer-designer hybrid in that Billy is a pretty strong designer. That if, if Billy had focused his energies, I could have used Billy on my design team. Um... His, his, his thought process is a little more development than design, but he was a very strong designer. And Bestow, I, I think, is an excellent design to give an example of what Billy's capable of. 
Um, well, finally, of course, I was on the design team. If, if that's not obvious, I was leading the design team. Um, one of the things that happened is uh, Aaron Forsyth, the director of Magic R&D, Aaron and I decided that for the near future that I'm just going to lead all the fall sets. Um, I've led uh, four out of the five last fall sets, so this is not a giant departure. Um, I did not lead Return to Ravnica. I, I, instead, I, I did Gate Crash. Um, but before that, I, I'd done uh, Zendikar and Scars of Mirrodin and Innistrad. So um, I'd mostly been doing the fall sets. We just sort of uh, solidified it. Um, there's a lot going on in the small sets. I'm sorry, in the large sets, the fall sets. And as head designer, a lot of my uh, structure in the block, it helps for me to be the person doing the first set. And anyway, um, it just, for a lot of reasons, it makes a lot of sense for me to do it. So I, I, for the foreseeable future, am doing the fall sets. Um, I did next year's fall set. I'm currently working on the fall set after that. So I did Huey and then working on Blood. So, Okay, let's talk some magic cards. Okay, so we'll talk, start with the Akroan Horse. So one of the things that we did early on is we wrote on the board, uh, we had a brainstorming session, is what magic cards would you expect to see? If you know we're doing you know, Greek-inspired world, what would you expect to see? So one of the things we stuck on the board was Trojan Horse. Okay, so for those that don't know the story, I'll, I'll do a very brief, abbreviated version. Um, uh, Homer uh, wrote a book called The Iliad and the Odyssey, two books. Uh, the Iliad was about a war, the Trojan War. Um, and Odysseus, the main character, uh, who's the king, a lot of kings in Greek mythology, um, he travels to um, Troy to participate in this war. Um, anyway... Uh, the war start because he takes Helen. Anyway, there's a war. I guess that's all you need to know. And one of the things is the the city of Troy is well defended. They have like a giant wall, and and they're having trouble um, fighting against Troy. So one of the one of the things they do in the story is they make a giant wooden horse as a gift, and they leave the wooden horse um, like a giant statue basically out in front of the um, city. And the city goes, oh, how nice, a gift. Maybe, maybe they don't want to fight anymore. And to show this, they are, they are giving us this, this gift. As a, you know. And so they, they wheel this giant horse into their city. And, of course, uh, inside the horse are a bunch of the soldiers from the other side. And at night, when it's dark, they sneak out of the horse, let their fellow people in, and sack Troy. Um, anyway, it is a pretty iconic... Uh, piece of, of you know, the, the Iliad of Greek mythology. So we're like, okay, we've got to do a Trojan horse. Now, clearly, it couldn't be a Trojan horse because there's no Troy. Um, you know, we, we, so it's an Akron horse because we have Akros. Akros, by the way, is the... Um, there are three cities, and Akros was the Sparta-inspired city. Um, one of the cities was inspired by... Um, I don't know if top of my head. Uh, by Athens, and was... Uh, a more philosophical base. Athens was more about the, the philosophers, and they, they were more, they were the, the thinkers. Uh, and then you had Sparta, and they were the fighters. Um, and so we had our two cities. One was based on Athens. One was based on, I did not write down the name of the cities. Acros is the Sparta city. Um, I'm not good at names off the top of my head, riding in my car. Uh, and the third one was based on Amazon. Uh, for those who know Wonder Woman, she is from Amazonia, uh, or Paradise Island, um, or uh, Themyscira. Um, and the idea is it's where the Amazons lived, and, and this was a... The third city is kind of based on that. Um, and so uh, one of the things that the, the creative team wanted is the idea of cities surrounded by wilderness, super Greek, 
Um, and the idea that there's culture and there's people who live in the cities, but they're surrounded by wild animals and wild beasts. Uh, very, very Greek. They, they wanted to do that to play that up. They wanted to play with the different city-states. Um, so the key to the Trojan horse was trying to find a way to capture the flavor of a Trojan horse, but also make a card that plays well. One of the big things that can happen is when you are making top-down cards, uh, here's a common mistake, is you make a card that's really, really top-down. It matches. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what it is. It matches exactly. But it doesn't play well. And the problem is, we're not going to make magic cards that don't play well, or at least we don't want to. Maybe we occasionally make them. But we don't try to make them. We want our cards to play well. And so the key was trying to find out... The goal of making a top-down card is not to make it as matching the flavor as possible. It is not, actually. The goal of a top-down card uh, like this is to... Once again, I talk about thresholds. Hit the threshold where it makes sense and it's flavorful, but then have a good gameplay. So what you want on a top-down card is a marrying of good gameplay with matching what is going on. But the goal is not to match as closely as possible. The goal is to match it enough that it feels right and then make sure it plays well. Um, and I, I, uh, this uh, a Crown Horse was made by, I believe, Ken Nagel. Um, uh, and so basically the idea is you gift the horse to your opponent, but then you get a, a token every turn. So a bunch of people have said, wait, wait, shouldn't it have been like one dumping of tokens because, you know, they hide in and they jump out at night? And what we found was that just the gameplay of slowly getting things we felt matched close enough and just was better gameplay. Um, and so we, we like the idea that if I get this out, the longer I keep it out. Because um, one of the things we wanted is we wanted your opponent to go, oh, oh no, the horse, i got to get rid of the horse. And they have to do something with the horse. You know, that if they want to stop you getting the people, they got to stop the horse. And that would be just better gameplay. Okay, we move on to Arena Athlete. So, yeah, by the way, when I do this card by card, a lot of the cards I'm talking about, I talked about in my article on cards, mostly because the, the best stories I had I wrote about. Um, I will try to add new information here so you'll learn some stuff you didn't know from the article. And, now, and I'm also trying to pick some cards I didn't talk about, uh, uh, Arena Athlete being one of them. But uh, there's going to be a lot of duplication with my article. Um, pretty much, by the way, if you don't like hearing things I said in my articles, uh, I mean, I, I try to make sure my podcasts add extra value, but I, there's going to be some repeat of content. That's just the nature of I have so many stories to tell and so many mediums to tell them in. Uh, so Arena Athlete is, is a good example of how we wanted to, how we take heroic and craft what we do. So one of the things that's very interesting is, um, one of the things that design will do during design is, and this is something that development had been doing and we just started doing in design so that like by the time it gets development, design's already spent some time and energy on it. It's something Eric was very big on and um, started I think with Innistrad. The, the first set that Eric had led for me, Eric had asked for something which is, he goes, can you define for me the 10 two-color pairs in draft, what you expect to do if you're drafting those colors? And so in my document I handed off to him, I spelled out what those 10 things were. And he used that as inspiration to how to develop his set. Uh, a few of them he changed. Sometimes they'll come to me and go, oh, you said this, and that's not working out. What do you think of that? And he and I will talk it through. Um, so one of the things was we wanted to figure out how to use heroic, meaning where was it valuable. And so what we came up with was there were three decks that we thought um, could use heroic. Uh, and once again, when I'm talking about uh, archetypes we're laying out, that doesn't mean there aren't other things you can do. It just means we, there's certain directions we point you in to say, here's some guidance in these color combinations. That doesn't tie your hands. That doesn't mean that there's not other things you can do. But it does mean we're trying to guide you in a certain direction. 
So with Heroic, we realized that there were three different uh, styles of play. There was a white-blue Heroic deck, there was a white-green Heroic deck, and there was a white-red Heroic deck. Um, you could do other combinations, but those were the colors that we had spelled it out that sort of had a strategy to it. Um, uh, in white-blue, because they were Heroic colors, uh, allowed you to have the, the most Heroic creatures... Um, and allowed you to make a deck that just... You would stock your deck full of things that were heroic enablers, like the, um, as I'll get to, the, the spells that target two of your things and such. Um, White-green was a building up, was more mid-range. Uh, white and green are the ones that have plus one, plus one counters on them. So white and green was definitely building up, so that was not quite as fast. Uh, White-red was the um, more aggressive aggro strategy, as we call it. Um, white and red is the most aggro color combination, if you notice... Most of the time, if you're playing white and red in uh, draft, you are playing a more aggressive deck. Um, by the way, people always ask me that, like, how come in this set white-red doesn't do something different? Why, why are they always the aggro? And I'm like, well, there's some consistency to magic. You know, the nature of what white does and what red does, and white is weenies and red has an aggressive strategy, that, that they lend themselves together to doing something. And so every once in a while we'll have a set where maybe they, they go a little bit in another direction. But really, the point is, white-red is the most aggressive color. They're going to be doing an aggressive thing. You're playing white-red, you're playing, you're playing an aggressive strategy, usually. Um, and so each set will have different things that we're doing, um, but it will be... It will, I mean, there's different ways to play the aggro deck, but just like there's always a giant growth every set. You know, we, we give a different... We'll twist it a little bit and do different things with it. Magic is magic there's always a giant growth. Magic is magic because there's a white-red aggressive strategy in draft. That, that is kind of what white-red is about. So, when picking heroic abilities for a white and red, um, now be aware, um, white, for example, had a bunch of different strategies. So, it's heroic creatures. We knew that not every heroic creature was within a white red deck, um, but we made some that overlapped. You know, some of, the, some of the smaller ones that get plus one, plus one counters are good in white green and white blue and white red. Um, anyway, red heroic was a little more focused on white red because that, that's the number one strategy we expect heroic to be played with in, in limited, mind you. Uh, we did a lot of stuff for Constructed that's a little different. Um, and this is a perfect example of what's an ability we can give a heroic creature that's really good in an aggressive base strategy and can't block is very good. You know, in, in, a, in a slower uh, controller-type strategy, not very good. You know, but in a strategy where I'm just constantly hitting you and I'm trying to eke out every point of damage because I'm trying to beat you as quick as I can, that's very valuable. And, it, and it's a good thing. And so one of the things you'll find is when we are figuring out what heroic things to put on a creature, we are also very, very careful to think in our heads about how it plays into the strategy. It's not just like, what can we do in red? It's, not like, it, it, it's more so than that. It's like, oh, well, what is red going to do here and how can we maximize what we're doing? Um, okay. Next is Ashiok. Now, Ashiok is very hard to talk about only because not using pronouns is very tough. So I, was, I will say the word Ashiok a lot. Um, Ashiok is very interesting because I talked about how I had a story early on. Now, once again, let me, let me phrase this. I'm not in charge of the story. I'm in charge of doing design. But early on, I need to have some archetypal story for me to understand. And usually, I get creative to sign off on some base story that they then tweak, you know, once we get farther along. So, for my purposes, I have a story so that I have an idea of what I'm doing, knowing that it's going to be changed a bit along the way. Um, in my original story, I wanted to make a planeswalker, um, a, a new villainous planeswalker. And my planeswalker um, had the ability to bring um, dreams and nightmares to life. That, that was 
his shtick. That was what he was good at. Um, and like I said, it, originally it was Dark Jace was my idea. Um, and some of what I was doing with Enchantment Creatures was messing around with the idea of bringing dreams to life. I mean, the gods were involved, but um, anyway, it, it was... I very much had a nightmare character that I had pitched in the early version of the story. Uh, and the creative team, when I get to Elsbeth, I'll talk about this, really, really wanted Elsbeth to be the hero. And, and they had a story, they, they had a much more um, like Greek mythological story they wanted to tell, so they shifted a little bit away from where I started. Um, but anyway, I find it interesting that there, there did end up being a planeswalker associated with nightmares and, and celestial dreams. Um, and Ashiak is that, is that planeswalker. Um, I, I don't think Ashiak was what I was envisioning, because Ashiak is more... I, like, I, I had, like, the, the character I'd made... I mean, first of all, it was Dark Chase, but it, I mean, it was a villain. A villain through and through, up to no good. Ashiak, a little less clear what Ashiak is up to, because uh, Ashiak is a mysterious planeswalker with mysterious motives. Um... One of the things that I enjoyed quite a bit, by the way, was it was always our intent that Ashiak was a mystery. Um, but what happened was when people, uh, especially in the um, in the 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 guide, but what, what do we call that? The player's guide. Um, they wanted to talk about all the planeswalkers, like they always do, and it is just very, very, very hard to talk about something for a long period of time and not use pronouns. And so the writer just decided, you know. Ashiak is, is undefined, but I will just use he because it's easier to talk about. Um, and a little bit that undercut, uh, I know uh, Doug was really, really wanted, uh, I mean, part of Ashiak's, the unknownness of Ashiak, Ashiak is a very important part of Ashiak. That, that you know, and, and I've been very warmed how well Ashiak's been received. It was interesting how, how much people really latched on and, and really, really took Ashiak to heart. So, I, I'm very, very happy we made Ashiak. Um, and, like I said, the, it, the, the, the intent of the unknown was always a key part of the character. Um, and so I, I, I think that, the once again, uh, we will des- if we know who the Planeswalkers are at the time, we knew Elspeth, for example, we will design cards during design. But sometimes, um, Ashiak, what happened with Ashiak was, so the way the Planeswalkers work is, the creative team comes to us and says, here's the characters we need. You know, here's the planeswalkers we need. They're in the story. They're important. We need. And then they sit down usually with Eric and figure out... Because normally we have five planeswalkers in a block. Um, and uh, they will figure out who they need to have and then what colors those characters are. And then they work with Eric to figure out what the gaps are. Because there needs to be a color balance in the planeswalkers. Because planeswalkers are very powerful. Um, and we need to have a color balance. So what will happen is... So, for example, for this set, they knew they needed... Um, Elsbeth, and they, they knew Elsbeth was white. They knew they needed Xenagos, and Xenagos was red-green. Um, uh, there are two other planeswalkers to come. I don't want to talk about them too much, but they definitely, some of them were, were, were defined. Um, and so the whole ended up being uh, we needed a black planeswalker. And so um, the, the goal basically was we need a black planeswalker, and then uh, I don't know who made Ashiak, but uh, the idea was they wanted this mysterious character that showed up at times of peril, um, and it made more sense as a blue black planeswalker. So they talked to Eric, and the blue was okay. So um, they um, 
anyway, the, actually it got made to, to fill a role, which was, was they needed a Black Planeswalker and, and blue-black was okay. Um, anyway, so that, that's where actually I came to be. Sometimes, like I said, Planeswalkers start from, oh, we need this character, okay, they're this color, hey, make this Planeswalker. Um, and so the creative team always gets, gets to start with a couple, but then um, development gets to come in and sort of say, okay, well, now we need to balance them, and, and, then, and then creative will make one just to fit that balance. Okay, I am pulling into work and looking at my chair. So here's, I mean, you, you can't see this since you, this is the, the lovely audio medium. Um, so I have, uh, I make a little list when I have stuff to do. Uh, and so I made a, I have a page full thing with, with a divider line, so two columns. I have one page full, second page full, third page, it's a little tiny bit on, but I have over two pages, two columns of cards to talk about. How far did I get? I haven't left A yet. I haven't got out of A. So anyway, hopefully you guys like hearing about uh, Theros because uh, I got some stuff to talk about. But you know what? I'm going to keep talking about it because uh, from all I can tell, you guys like the, the podcast about about the sets and about the card designs. And so um, um, I'm having fun talking about it. And I'm trying to, like I said, I'm trying to add up some new information and tell you some stuff you might not have heard along with a few things maybe you have heard. Um, but, anyway, I'm looking at the Wizards building right now, and I know that I have some work to do. So, I enjoy talking to you guys all about Theros. It's fun. I had a great time making Theros. I have a lot of fun talking about Theros. But, while talking about Theros is fun, the reason I get paid is for making magic. I'll see you guys next time. Bye.